0: five eight (laughs) oh five so all right announcements before we get going um this is men's discipleship so we're here here we are how was the summer it was good right and in the cold weather it's uh brutal (laughs) i was born to be in the south and uh god has other plans i guess but uh, we meet every Saturday. You guys know that. Um, we, we changed the breakfast this year. It used to be the third Saturday of the month, which was incredibly confusing. Um, but now it's the, four, the the last. So it's always going to be the last Saturday of the month is going to be the men's breakfast. Uh, and that'll help us because if we do a topic uh, over the course of a month and you don't get that one week where you know you're kind of not doing it and then you jump back in for one more week, it was always kind of strange. So uh, this year, the breakfast is always last. We'll um, always have uh, someone else sharing a guest um, during that time. We're going to meet from now until November 23rd, which is the, the week before Thanksgiving. We'll be on every Saturday until then. Uh, we'll break for December. Gets crazy around Christmas time. Everybody's got busy schedules. Uh, there's always a lot of stuff going on around here, uh, getting ready for the Christmas service. So, no discipleship in December. We'll start again the beginning of January, and we'll go right through until the end of May, and uh, I think that's May 31st, goes right up to the last day of May, um, which is a Saturday, and then we'll be done for, for the, the summer. So that's kind of the schedule to have it in your mind. It's now till Christmas, till December, and then from January all the way to May, uh, every Saturday. The sessions are <laughs> recorded, but they are not um, mass-produced you know it's kind of like we record it in case you know because some guys they really want to be here but uh there are obviously times when you just can't you got a family you got a job you got a life you can't uh do it you know and yet sometimes you don't want to miss out on what was there so th- they're available um if a series turns out really 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 good then uh you know maybe it'll get published and and you know Made available, but the purpose of the recording is really just you know if you really can't make it you know it's not uh, it's not supposed to be the kind of thing well hey I'll get the CD I can listen to it in the car sometime you know but anyway so that that now you know that um, we try to do a topic per month you know we're gonna start today with something special it's not not really a topic we'll continue but um, you know that's a very loose thing at the discretion of how the Lord leads. It could overflow or underflow depending on how it goes, and uh, I guess that's it. One, the only other thing that I would say uh, is this: is that bring your Bible and bring a notebook uh, and a pen. Write that down. Maybe you didn't bring one today. (laughs) Put it in your smartphone or something. You know. But but I will say this: that this is not. This isn't intended to be a sermon necessarily. Uh, there's times when it might sound like that, but this is a Bible study. You know, we are seeking to hear God's heart, to dig into the Word, to be rooted and grounded in it. And, you know, just going through as I was preparing this for this morning, there's no possible way, I mean... Uh, even the person with the most incredible memory in the world, they're not, you're not going to get all the verses and, and, and remember them. And it'll just help you to have a notebook, you know, even if you're not a real note taker, just to be able to write down the references, write down a couple things. Uh, if you don't have a notebook, you're going to miss something. I can tell you right now. So get a notebook, dedicate it to Saturday mornings, um, bring a pen, bring a Bible, um, and uh, that will help you greatly. So that's it for announcements. Uh, let me give you some places to open in your, in your Bible. Uh, this morning, you can open to the book of Matthew. And then we're going to flip to Luke, but man, it's close enough to Matthew that you don't have to dedicate a finger to Luke. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Peter chapter two. Come on, you have enough. You have five. I only got four places. You got five fingers. One more is John seventeen. First Peter two, and then we'll go. We're gonna go to Second Peter. Um, you know, I keep these post its. I have post its like all throughout my Bible. Those work great for for things like this. You know, just to hold your place if you don't want to keep your finger there, if you have to write or something, you know, because whatever. But now you know where we're going. (laughs) And one more time, let's just pause. Father, we do pray, Lord, that you would center our attention perfectly upon what you would say to us this morning. Lord, that you would give us uh, open hearts, receptive attitudes, Lord and a will to change. We ask, Lord, that you would challenge us, that we wouldn't uh, desire to walk in, in ease as we walk with you, but that you would challenge us, Lord. And so we pray, Father, that your word would pierce and penetrate our hearts, that your spirit would illuminate it and make straight paths for our feet. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you, who do you want to be like? A couple of years ago, Time Magazine published an article which became a special feature which was ultimately published as a book called, The 100 Most Influential People of All Time. And that list was made up of people of wealth, people of power, of fame, people of intelligence, people that have done well in athletics, And those that have changed the world through innovation and inventions. And they were given, depending on their level of achievement, the title of an influential person. The word influence or influential by dictionary definition is the capacity of power of persons or things to be a compelling force on or to produce effects on the actions, behavior, and opinions of others. To influence someone means that someone looks at the influential party, says, I want to be like that, and then in some way seeks to model or mold their own life after the pattern of the person whom they're seeking to emulate. That's what it means to be influential. And this list was of influential people. And we're all influenced by someone. We all have people that impress us. Whether they be persons in history that have come and gone or people that live today, we all know what it's like to look at someone's life and say, I want to be like that. Well, who are some of the influential persons that were branded as the most influential of all time? Just a few of them. One was Albert Einstein, a man of incredible intelligence one of the most intelligent that ever lived. People covet and try to understand even his, the depth of his thinking power. So intelligent was he? Another, Alexander the Great, a man of great military expertise and strategy and power and courage. And People look at what he was able to do, conquering the whole known world by the time he was in his early 30s. And people look at him and say, if we could be like him, He's influential. Another is Confucius. To have your sayings and quips still branded on fortune cookies, even to today. <laughs> An influential person, indeed. You know, The only one to make it to the list that is alive presently or in the 21st century is none other than Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> he beat out Steve Jobs because Steve Jobs was only able to make things look good. Mark Zuckerberg was able to make it okay to take half-naked pictures of yourself in the mirror and brand it as self-branding, you know. And, And so he becomes one of the most influential people of all time because of Facebook and the money that he's made through that venture. And so he's called an influential person. Who do you want to be like? Let me ask you, do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to be like Jesus? This is discipleship. And discipleship means to be a follower of Jesus with the intent of learning from him in order to become like him. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means that piercing through all of the other influences and other voices that exist in the world we look into the very heart of the Son of God and we see something there that resonates in our spirit and we say, that's who I want to be like. I want to be like Jesus. And that represents the very purpose of the Christian life and calling. To know him, to follow him, to be changed by him, and to be like him. Now in the modern era in which we live, there is a vast and broad difference between being a Christian and being a disciple. Now, notice that I said in the modern era. There's a difference, and it's true. In the modern era, to be a Christian means that you're a churchgoer. It means that you subscribe to the Bible as your preferred holy book, that if someone asks you where your beliefs come from, you would say the Bible. It means that you're an American in many instances, or it's simply an identification of the culture that you're a part of it's a cultural ID I'm I'm a Christian for some it means I'm not a Muslim or a Jew or one of the eastern brands of religion and so by default that makes me of the Judeo-Christian ethic therefore I'm a Christian and and we've kind of given Christianity that definition or that title that, that has its own kind of interpretation however to be a disciple or a disciple of Christ has a completely different definition in our culture, in our society. To be a disciple means that you're a fanatic. It means that you're a born againer or you call yourself born again. It means that you're fundamental in your beliefs, that you're evangelical, one who is vocal or expressive about your faith. You share it with others. A disciple is someone who seeks to not just believe or attend or subscribe, but it's someone who seeks to live and to practice and to do the things that are taught by the one that they're following. It's someone who practices the disciplines. In American culture, to be a disciple means that you're actually a terrorist, according to the U.S. government, (laughs) if you follow any of that. In our era, there's a difference between a Christian and a disciple. But in the Bible, there's not. In the Bible, the two things are absolutely synonymous. In fact, the word Christian only appears three times in the Bible. The word disciple in the New Testament appears 269 times. It is by far the preferred title of the Lord for his people, that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. It wasn't until long after the death of Christ that the word Christian was even introduced as a synonym for disciple. It was in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. It says that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And the word Christian was used as a derogatory term. It was an insult. It meant little Christ. And when they were called Christians, it was to, you know, belittle them. And the other two times that it's used in the Bible, it's used in that context. One is by Agrippa when he's talking to Paul. And he says, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And it was derogatory in nature. There was a hint of mockery in it. You almost persuade me to become one of you fundies or born-againers is what Felix was saying. The other time is when Peter was writing to the Christians and he said this. He said, if any of you suffer as a Christian... The idea, again, behind it is that you're being persecuted for your faith, made fun of because of who you follow. And so that was the context of the word Christian, but they were originally called disciples. What we are called to be is not Christians, but disciples. Jesus did not come to have followers or people that subscribe to following him, like you would follow someone on Twitter or Facebook. Oh, I have this many friends, Jesus is you know, account would say, or this many followers on Twitter. That's what we've made Christianity in America today, is that this is who I follow. I pay attention to these things. But to be a disciple is totally different. It's to want to be so influenced by the Lord that we become like him because we want to be like him. That's what it means to be a disciple. So what's the goal of discipleship? What is the goal of being a disciple? Why are we here and what do we do this? Well, the answer comes straight from the Bible. You're in Matthew, if you would, the 10th chapter, verse 24. Jesus gives to us the goal of what we're doing. What's our purpose, our objective? Why do we want to be disciples? Here it is. Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? So the goal of discipleship is that we be as our master. In other words, that we want to be like him. That we want the influential person, the influential person, To influence our lives that we might be like him. And that's our goal. Our goal isn't to subscribe or to confess. Our goal is to be like. To be conformed into the very image of the one that we're following. That our lives become a reflection of him and an expression of him. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's our goal. And when your life becomes so Christ-like that people look at you and they can't tell the difference between you and Jesus... At that point, you've accomplished your objective. Until then, we continue to press on. That's our goal. That goal comes with a cost. What's the cost? Leave Matthew, turn to Luke. Luke chapter 14. If we want to achieve this objective and we want to be like Christ, then what's that going to cost us? If we want to be impressed by someone or influenced by someone, if we want to become like someone, like an Alexander the Great, or, you know, a Mark Zuckerberg, or whoever it is that we're imitating or seeking to be like, it doesn't just happen because we want it. There's a cost. There's some effort that goes into it. What's the cost of discipleship? Of following Jesus with the intent of being made like him. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus tells us what it's going to take. He says this. He says, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now before you think for a second that Jesus is actually telling you that you're supposed to hate your father and your mother, your brothers and your sisters, and hate yourself, understand the context of it. We're not to hate anyone. We're to love even our very enemies. The Bible preassumes that we love ourselves. It says that if we love our neighbor the way we love ourselves, then we're doing well. It's the assumption is that we love ourselves. So what Jesus is saying in context is not that we're to literally hate them, but here's what he is saying, is that our devotion and love for the Lord is to be so strong and so sincere that compared to that love and devotion that we have for Christ, our other relationships should look like hate. That, that that love towards him should be so strong that all the others you would think are almost insignificant because my devotion is so securely set upon him first. And then he says, verse 27, that our love towards him is to be secure. Then verse 27, and whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Number two is that there's assuming of a death to the self-life taking up the cross means a willing laying down of my life to put Christ first. Then, verse 28, he says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus gives them the conditions and then he gives them the cost. He says that you will have to count the cost, that it will require that you lay down everything that he be absolutely first, that your number one ambition and goal in life is to be a disciple or one who follows with the intent of becoming like. That's to be our aim. That's what we're called to do. And the suggestion that Jesus is making there is that if that's not the priority that we place upon our relationship with him, at some point, we will compromise and turn aside. That's the point of that whole thing about counting the cost of building or of battling. Is that, hey, if I at some point realize that, hey, this costs more than I'm willing to pay, then at some point I'm going to compromise and say, you know what, I'm not so, I don't really want to go after this anymore, and your life will turn aside. And so there's a cost. The call is that we be like him. The cost is everything. It will cost all that we have to go after him. That's what the terms are. What's the reward? What's the reward of being a disciple of Christ? Well, if we want to be like him, well, then we look at his life and we see, well, what is the reward? And what we discover is that he was poor. He was homeless. He was rejected by the religious establishment and by the mainstream of his day. He was surrounded by sickly, needy, average, non-influential people. (laughs) Anyone want to be like Jesus? He was the antithesis of everything that we look at in the world's list of 100 most influential people. He was the antithesis of all of those things. And yet, he's the one that we're here saying that we want to follow. You ask, well, why would anyone want to be like that? Why would anyone want to follow Jesus or be a disciple? That's a great question. And it brings us to our second part, our second point, if you would. And that is the question of motivation. Why? 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 If you want to be like Jesus, you want to be a disciple of Christ, why do you want to be a disciple? Why are you following Jesus? Ask yourself that question. There's two reasons why a person comes to Jesus Christ. There's actually many reasons, but they fall under two categories. Number one, I call it the means. Category number one is the means. That is that Jesus, following Jesus, is the means to some end. I'm following him because of something I hope to receive. And under that category, you could say things like, well, I don't want to go to hell. And Jesus is the means by which I don't have to go to hell. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's a bad thing. (laughs) I don't want to go to hell, and I don't want you to go to hell, and I don't want anybody else to have to go to hell. And if that's the reason you're following Jesus, then that's a great start. (laughs) It's a good thing, but it's still a means. I'm following him because... I don't want to suffer the wrath of God, and he is the answer to not suffering the wrath of God. Number two is individual needs. I need a healing, or I need deliverance, or I need provision. There's some need that I have in my life, and I realize that the only place that that need can be met is if I come to and am in relationship with Jesus. And so I'm following Jesus, I'm coming to Jesus because of that need that's going to be met within my life. Number three in the means column is the need for a moral handle. Well, my life is just spinning morally out of control. I thought I could control these urges, impulses, desires, addictions, habits, vices, but these things are beginning to control me. And so I'm coming to Jesus because I need some type of a moral grip. He does that. How about a quiet conscience? My conscience bothers me. And so I'll follow him. I'll profess faith in him. I'll even serve him because it helps my conscience settle down because of the conviction, because of the things that I'm doing. Another is traditional comfort. People are raised that way. It's Western. We live in America. We're a Christian nation. We have Christian roots. Our families have a Christian heritage. They went to church. We grew up in church, and so I'm carrying on the tradition. I've sown my wild oats, and now it's time to settle down. And so I'm going to church because there's a traditional comfort in it or I want to raise my kids that way. Now listen, all of those things are not bad things. The means, the reasons why we might follow Jesus or say it's important to me, but it's a miss. It's not the reason. It's not going to produce longevity because eventually those needs will be met, those objectives will be accomplished and then compromise will set in. That is not discipleship. The second column, or the second set of reasons, and it should only be singular because there's really only one, is what I call the end reason. And that is that Jesus isn't a means to some end, but rather Jesus is the end in and of himself. Motivation. Why? I'm following Jesus because of what I'll get, or I'm following him because of who he is. He's the end. Who is he? Who is Jesus? That I might follow him, that I'm following him, not because of what he's going to do for me, but because of who he is. Why? Who is he? Number one, two titles that he gives to himself that the Bible ascribes that sum up who he is. Number one, he's the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. What does that mean? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says that he is the express image of the Father. The express image that is the human manifestation of God. Colossians 1.15 says it this way. It says that he is the image of the invisible God. That is that the person and character of God is manifested in human flesh in the person of Jesus. He is fully god in his personality, in his disposition, in his nature. But that personality of God that's infinite in its expression is encapsulated in the body of Jesus Christ as a man in his flesh. And so he's God in the flesh. He's the son of God. But he's also called, his favorite title for himself was, the son of man. Number two, he's the son of man. What does that mean? The son of man is that his physical body was the offspring of Adam and Eve. The physical being that he was, was the offspring of the first man and woman of Adam and Eve. Now man, singular, not the son of man, but man himself, man was created to be in the image of God. That's what man was made for. So if man was made in the image of God, his physical frame, our body, and now you have the son of man who is also the son of God, what you have is you have God in the flesh. You put those two things together and here's what you get, is that the full expression of God contained in the body of man, or another way to say it is man's body filled with the person of God. That's who Jesus was. He was God in the flesh. Now you say, why would I want to be a disciple of that? Or why is it important to me to want to follow him just because of who he is? Here's the answer. is because that's exactly what you were created to be. You were created to be a physical being filled with the person of God. That's what we were made for. That's where man finds his highest purpose. Now how does that happen? How do we become what we were made to be, that is, man filled with God? How does it happen? We move from motivation now to method. How do we become disciples of Christ? Well, first of all, you must be born again. That's number one. John chapter 1, verse 12 says this It says, To as many as received him, to them gave he power to be called the sons of God. So, in receiving Christ, which is being born again, it's in receiving Christ that we are then adopted and put into his family, we become sons of God. Not in the same context that Jesus was. Don't come here, leave here today and say, Nick said that we're little Jesuses. You know, I'm I'm Jesus. No, no. This isn't Shirley MacLaine, you know. (laughs) I'm God, you're God. No, no. But when we accept Christ, we're adopted into the family of God. We become a son of God by adoption. And something happens when that takes place. And that's why you must be born again. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. And when you're born again, you are adopted. Your name is included in Christ. And something happens at that moment is that God places his Holy Spirit, his living spirit inside your soul, in your body. The living God moves in and there's a switch. There's life that begins. You're spiritually revived and regenerated. Well, then what happens? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look what happens. After you're born again, now you're given a new operating system. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 9. He's talking about the mysterious things of God, the hidden wisdom of God. That's the context. And in verse 9, he says this. He says, but as it is written, he says, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. And then he explains what he means by that. And really what I'm talking about when I'm saying that the spirit is put inside of you. Here's what that does. Verse 10 or verse 11. He says, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Now that we understand that, right? He's saying nobody knows you like you know you. Nobody knows what you're thinking and the way you think except for you. Even our wives, they know us a little bit, but they don't know us like we know us. No one knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man that's in him. And then he says, even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Same thing's true for God. Nobody knows God but God, right? Nobody knows me but me. Nobody knows God but God. He knows himself. So, verse 12, he says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have freely been given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but that which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Here's what he's saying here. He's saying that when you're born again, you're given the Spirit of God. And because you have the Spirit of God, you're able to perceive the Spirit's thoughts. He's inside you, He's not an external force. He's not a God who's afar off somewhere where, you know, He's doing and thinking what He's thinking, and I'm completely separate, but He's given us of His Spirit. That we might have his thoughts, perceive his thoughts, understand his thoughts, and know who he is. And he says the natural man, the person who has not been born again, doesn't understand that. Do you remember what it was like to read the Bible before you were saved? I do. I would read the Bible and get frustrated. Because it didn't make sense to me. Especially when people around me started getting saved and they were becoming disciples of Christ, following him. And I would say, why would you trade in your life for something that doesn't even make sense? I said that to people. A man puts his stick in the water and the water opens up. It's nonsense, I would say. A guy throws seed on the ground and ooh, it grows. This is, you're gonna give your life for this, I would say. Then I was born again. And I read the Bible and the lights turned on. And I said, oh my goodness. This has been here the whole time and I never even knew it. These truths that resonate in the deepest part of who we are. The power of the word to change a life. The existence and the reality of God and the fellowship that we can have with him. These things are real. But I couldn't understand that as a natural man. It wasn't until I was born of the spirit and then I had the mind of Christ and then the word made sense. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Wow, the seed on the ground and the staff in the water are related. And it all makes sense. And it's not until you have the spirit of God that that happens. He says, verse 15, but he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? He's quoting scripture. Then he answers his question at the end of the verse. He says, but we have the mind of Christ." And so you're born again, the Spirit of God moves inside, and a seed has been planted inside of you. A seed of God's heart, of God's nature, of God's ways is put in you. It's a new operating system. I call it Holy Spirit illumination. Now, we all use computers. Anybody here not use computers at all? You are completely computer illiterate. Well, hang with me on this one, you know. Computer, you know, has an operating system like, you know, Windows, Windows 7 or Windows 8, I mean 8, you know, (laughs) they call it if you've used it, you know what I'm talking about, you know, but there's an operating system and all of the programs that you use, whether it be Microsoft Word or Internet Explorer, or whatever it is that you're using has to be in the operating system in order for, for, for you to use it. You need the operating system to use the program. Now, if you introduce a program that's incompatible with the operating system, it doesn't work. So you need the operating system in order to interpret the program. Now, we all operated on the operating system of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so that's what made sense to us. Worldly things, fleshly things, devilish things. But when you're born again, you're given a new operating system, Holy Spirit illumination. And now the things of God make sense. You have the right operating system. And so when the Word of God comes in, you can understand it. When the things of the Spirit of God come in, when the voice of the Lord comes in, it makes sense. It's not encrypted anymore, but it makes sense to you now because you have the operating system of the Spirit. But now there's a process that needs to begin. The process is called growth. See, after you're born again, and then given the operating system of the Spirit of God, now you've got to transfer your files. Things have to be moved from the old system of the flesh and the world and the devil, and some things deleted, destroyed, and new things written on the operating system of the spirit that's growing up inside of you. You've got to grow. That's what we're doing here. That's discipleship. It's sanctification. How does it happen? Turn to 1 Peter. How do we grow? How do we feed and develop this new operating system that we have that's designed to make us Christ-like. How do we do it? One verse in First Peter, and then we're going to immediately flip to 2 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Peter gives this one verse, one line of instruction that's the key to all of it. He says, As newborn babies desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. We've been born again. This infant light of the Spirit's been placed inside of us. We're called to feed it, that it might grow. And what do we feed it with? The Word. Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The manna that was given to the children of Israel in Old Testament times, it was a symbol of the word that we have, that we enjoy. Paul the apostle over and over again signifies that the word is like our food because it's the food that feeds your spirit that it might grow. I'm watching my infant son move through those early weeks of development when they change almost daily. They double in size over a period of weeks and, it, you know, and they just grow. Their face expressions come in and you, see, you watch nerve endings connect and things just happen. You see it happen so quickly. How does it happen? You feed it. He eats constant. As he eats, he develops, he grows. It happens so quickly. What happens to the Christian? This life of Christ has been put inside. It must be fed. It's fed with the word of God. And as it's fed, it begins to grow. And what happens? Flip over to 2 Peter chapter chapter 1. Just a couple skinny Bible pages to the right. How does it work, this growth? How does the word of God feed the operating system of the spirit that's in me? Verse 2, chapter 1, 2 Peter. He says grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that called us by glory and virtue. That verse sums up everything that we've said thus far. That his divine power has given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. In other words we came to know him. We were born again. And at that moment his power was placed inside of us. That will that, that gives to us the operating system. To be all things that we're called to be. Then verse 3 or verse 4. He says by which have been given to us. Exceeding great and precious promises. Now where are, we, are those found? In the word right? That. Through these, through the word, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. He's saying that the power of God and his spirit has been placed inside of you. And that spirit of God gives to you, at the moment you're saved, everything that you need for life and godliness. The DNA that determines what you'll be when you are fully discipled, fully sanctified, fully Christ-like. The DNA for that is already inside of you. And what we're called to do is to feed it. And as we feed it, we become partakers of the divine nature. I like that because D, divine nature, it, the, the initials are DN, right? Divine nature. And what is the divine nature? Agape love, right? What's agape? A DNA. Your spiritual DNA, the divine nature, is the agape love of God. It's already in you, but it needs to be fed. So we've got to grow. That's the process of what it is. Now, let me add this as a side note, somewhat of a parenthetical here is that in order for the Word of God to rightfully do its work in causing us to grow, it takes more than just reading it and understanding it. It must be obeyed. To hear the Word, perceive it, even to share it, but not to live it, makes it impotent. It's anemic. It doesn't provide the nourishment that we need to grow if we don't do it and practice it. Remember the manna in the Old Testament? Every morning they would go out and God would rain this miraculous bread from heaven on the ground. And they would have to go every morning and they would gather the bread. Well, reading the Bible is like gathering the bread. We go every morning and we read the Bible. You've gathered the bread, but the bread has done you no good yet. As yet, it's in a basket or a jar. It isn't until you eat it that it does you some good. And what would happen if they didn't eat it or didn't gather it? By evening or by mid-morning, what would happen to the bread? Someone? It would rot. That's right. If they didn't eat it, it would rot. And the same thing is true with Bible knowledge. If you have Bible knowledge but you don't live it, then it rots. It becomes useless. So if you're not doing what you're learning, what you're knowing, then you're not growing And you're not going to become. So it must be done. And that's this process of growing. And here's the result. Here's what happens when we do this. We're born again. The Spirit lives inside of us. We're eating on the Word. It's causing us to grow. And here's the result, is what John the Baptist said in one verse. He increases and we decrease. The old operating system becomes more obsolete. More is deleted from its memory and from its, you know, Registry, and more is built up in the new. We become a new man in Christ. Old things are passed away. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And so here's this process of of growth, is that the old man decreases and the new man increases. And we become more Christ-like. It's called discipleship. It's called sanctification being changed from what we were into what we're called to be into what we're going to be. Nineteen times Jesus said, follow me. It means that we have a part to play. It doesn't happen automatic. Well, we get saved, we go to church, and one day we wake up and we're sanctified. We're a disciple. It doesn't work. We must follow him, and that requires something. If you had an aspiration to become like someone, maybe someone on the list, you know, 100 most influential people of all times, and you really, you had the aspiration, you wanted to be like them. I think of my son. He loves the New York Yankees. I don't know where he got that. We, I love all sports, but never took to baseball, but he did, you know, loves watching the Yankees. And it's so cool to watch him because he, he is a detailed guy. He notices detail. And, you know, I watch him. He loves Robinson Cano because, I mean, you know, if you know anything about these guys, he's, he's cool. He's not just like a base, but he's cool. Like, when he hits a home run and runs the bases, he blows bubbles while he runs the bases. So I watch my son. He goes out in the yard. He's all by himself, doesn't know I'm watching. But he, he'll, he'll swing the bat. He'll, go, ah, he'll drop the bat. And then he'll run the bases real slow and blow bubbles. You know, He'll field a, a, a ball from second base, and he'll do this cool thing where he pops the ball out of his glove, catches it, looks at it real quick, and then wings it over to first base, just like Robinson Cano. You know. He has an aspiration. He wants to be like that. He, he's impressed by it. I want to be just like him, Dad. Well, what's the first thing? When you aspire to be like someone, what do you do? You watch what they do, and you do likewise. That's what I would call imitation. You're imitating the things that you can see. Now, that's natural, but it's very ineffective because you can't change who you are just simply by imitating what someone else does. So once you realize that, maybe you're aspiring to be like someone else, Bill Gates or, you know, Albert Einstein or whatever. And so you, you do what they do, but you realize, ah, that's not it. That doesn't do it. So number two, then, is that you read what they said. Or you listen to what they say. Step number two is assimilation. Well, if I hear what they say, maybe it'll rub off on me a little bit and I'll be more like them, you know. And so you listen to what they say because you want it to get into your mind, not just into your actions, but into your mind. And that's good. That, that works a little bit. But after a while you say, that's, it's just not there yet. And, and so then what you do is I want to know about their life. And so maybe you get out a book about Einstein or a book about Cano and you research his past, where he came from, how he grew up, the things that shaped him, that were formative in his years. And you think, well, maybe if I study those things, then that'll help me to get into the same track, the same frame of mind that brought him from where he was to where he is. But then you realize, okay, that does it to a point, but it's it's still not there. I'm not what I'm supposed to be yet. And so eventually you come to the point where you you realize, I've got to know what drove that person. What drove them? What was their ambition? What is it that they wake up day by day that's implanted in their brain, not just the way they think or what they say or how they act, but what drives them deep inside? If I could get that, then I could end up in the same place. Let's apply that now to our desire to be like Jesus. And let's ask the question. Now, we know what he did. We know what he said. We know his background. But what drove Jesus? What made him who he was? and made his life what it was. And What is it that we ultimately are to be? What drove Jesus? Well, Jesus had fame. He couldn't get into a village or a town or... Be along a lakeside without a multitude of people being there. Thousands of people wanted to be around Jesus, but what we learned real quick is that he wasn't driven by fame. He had no desire to be famous. We know that because he would constantly tell people, Don't tell anyone who I am or what I've done for you. He would say, Shh, because he didn't want the fame. He wasn't looking for attention. Jesus had influence. But he wasn't looking for that. He wasn't driven by trying to influence people. We know that because he would often withdraw. He would do something in such a way where it was done so simply and so humbly and then he would just withdraw. When he healed the blind man, the blind man couldn't even pick his face out of a crowd. He said, I don't even know who he is. Because Jesus wasn't looking for that kind of influence. He wasn't trying to, you know, bring anything. When he walked with the disciples on the road to a mess, he hid his identity He wasn't looking for that. That wasn't what drove him. He wasn't, he he had power. He walked on water. He multiplied loaves and fishes. He commanded leprosy to go away. He put religious rulers in their place and silenced powerful people. He was a powerful man, but he wasn't driven by power. It was not what he was after. Not motivated by it. Didn't want power. We know that because he never used it for himself. And he never capitalized on it. He never used his power to advance his cause. He did it to serve, to help, or to glorify God. He had position. He could have been king. They tried to make him king a few times, but he wasn't driven by that, wasn't interested in it. Every time they would try to make him a king, he would go somewhere else. He'd change locale because he didn't want that. He wasn't looking for that. He wasn't driven by that. He wasn't trying to build a kingdom on this earth. None of that drove Jesus. It wasn't wealth, it wasn't fame, it wasn't influence. He could have had wealth, but he didn't. He said the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So small was their budget that when Jesus put it to his disciples to go get food to feed the multitude, they they laughed at him. They said, Lord, 200 denarii couldn't feed this many people. We don't have that kind of money. We're on a small budget. He could have had a budget that made the churches of today look like paupers, but he didn't. He wasn't driven by wealth. didn't want wealth. He openly rejected and demonstrated that he was unmoved by anything that typically drives men. He was not moved by it. None of those things drove Jesus. None of the things that drive us drove him. So what drove him? The answer is in John chapter 17. And there we close. What drove Jesus Christ that made him who he was? This is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. People talk about the Lord's prayer, our Father. That's not the Lord's prayer. That's our prayer. This is the Lord's prayer because this is literally the Lord's prayer. He prays this and it's recorded for us what he prayed. Now listen to Jesus' prayer and you find out what drove Jesus. This is what drove him, what he woke up day by day longing for, wanting, that made him who he was. It says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And here it is. Here's the answer. One verse. This drove Jesus Christ. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He couldn't be moved by wealth, by fame, by power, by influence, by authority, by anything that this world could offer, what he wanted was to be glorified together with his Father. His appetite for anything this world could give or produce was ruined by the glory that he knew existed with God in his kingdom. And so great is and was that glory that there was nothing that would ever distract him from wanting that. That's what drove Jesus Christ. He's the only man that ever walked this planet that knows what that's like. None of us do. We've never been there. We weren't with the Father in glory before the world was. He was. And he came here to testify of what that was like and then to purchase us that we might enjoy the same. Here's the example that we get in Jesus is that the reward that we're seeking is not in this world and that nothing that this world could ever produce or provide can measure with that glory that awaits. That drove them. And see, once we're driven that same way, The motivation, the drive of our life becomes, Lord, not here, not now. I'm waiting for you. I'm putting off this world that I might gain the next. It's then that our lives truly become a reflection of his. You understand? It's not here. And so if we want to be like Jesus, then we think like Jesus. We conform our lives. We follow him. We hear what he said. We do what he did. We put into practice his word. We stay in fellowship with the Father. And we keep our focus on those things that actually. God's very intent in making man is that he might share that glory with us. That's what he wants for us. That we would be in his kingdom, in his presence. This is eternal life, that they might know you. That's what he wants. He wants us to know him. And he invites us, he calls us to follow him. Where is he going? He's going to glory. If we follow, where will we end up? Glory. So I close where we began. Who do you want to be like? Do you want to be like Jesus? Father, we just thank you so much for this time and this word. We ask you to Challenge our hearts with it. Cause it to sink deep down into our soul. Let it search us. Let it ask of us the question of our motivation, our drives, our desires, our passions, our ambitions and goals. And we would ask this morning that the Spirit of God that lives inside of us would put to death those things that will come to nothing and strengthen those things that will remain and that we might be true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our affection and allegiance and love for him would be powerful and strong, unshakable. And That you would fix our eyes upon eternity and upon a crown that never fades and that nothing in this world would ever be able to take our mind and eyes off of what you give. So fill us with your Spirit and help us, Lord, to live the life of the overcomer. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Questions, comments, thoughts?